by the time you're 80, you have about a 50% chance of having hearing loss sufficient in degree to require amplification so that you can effectively communicate with everybody around you. So that's in your future. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello there, and thanks for joining me for episode 28 in our podcast series. If this is your first time joining, then welcome to the show. Hereditary deafness is pretty common. It affects about one in a thousand newborns, and it accounts for the majority of severe to profound childhood deafness. It can also affect the elderly. In fact, by the time you're 80 years old, you'll have about a 50% chance of having hearing loss severe enough to require amplification. And in many cases, the cause is genetic. Today, we're talking about the genetics of hearing loss and hearing impairment with Dr. Richard J. Smith. Richard is professor of otolaryngology at the University of Iowa and director of the Molecular Otolaryngology and Renal Research Laboratories, or MORL. He and his team study the genetic basis of deafness, and they also develop tools to aid in the genetic testing of heritable forms of hearing loss. Well, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast, Richard. I really appreciate it. We've done a lot of shows on cancer. We've done a lot of infectious disease. We've done autoimmune disease, but we, we've never really done a show on hearing disorders and hearing loss. It's really surprising to me that there's so much genetic information about hearing loss. How big a problem is hearing loss? What's the prevalence in the United States? What's the clinical impact? So first of all, Paul, thank you for the opportunity to participate and to be here today. Um, hearing loss is actually a huge problem. It's the most common sensory deficit there is. About one in a thousand children are born with profound hearing loss. Now, there's different degrees of hearing loss. There's mild, moderate, moderately severe, severe and profound. And so if we take the profound category, about one in a thousand children are born with profound hearing loss. Wow, that's, that's quite a lot. And by the time you're 80, you have about a 50% chance of having hearing loss sufficient in degree to require amplification so that you can effectively communicate with everybody around you. So wow. that's in your future, possibly. <laughs> among, all the, among all the other good things that are, that are certainly awaiting me, I'm sure. So it's a big clinical problem. How did you get involved in studying the genetics of hearing loss? I got involved in the early 80s at a time when lots of people were looking for genetic causes of different diseases, different illnesses. There was a huge effort focused on cystic fibrosis. And I thought I could apply the same principles to a uh, type of hearing loss that's accompanied by visual impairment called Usher syndrome. So Usher syndrome is the most common genetic cause of the dual sensory impairments of blindness and hearing loss. Could you tell a little bit about what kinds of patients you see? I mean, you mentioned Usher syndrome being one. How do your patients get referred to you for genetic testing? So we see lots of people with different types of hearing loss. Sometimes it's children who are born with hearing loss. About 99% of babies born anywhere in the United States have a newborn hearing screen. And depending on the result of that screen, they either pass 
or they fail. And we don't really say fail, we say refer. So they pass or they refer. And then if they refer, they're subsequently retested. And if they refer on that, then they have a diagnostic test. That test will be able to grade the degree of hearing loss they have. And then depending on uh, the results of that test, I may become involved and uh, offer to the parents the possibility of genetic testing. Um, And then we also see children who are diagnosed later in childhood, for example, going into uh, kindergarten, Mm -hmm. and then children later on in life and young adults and and, uh, adults. What percentage of patients would you estimate undergo genetic testing? It's increasing tremendously. So after an audiogram, the single best test that you can order in anybody with hearing loss to establish a diagnosis and then to offer that person prognostic information and healthcare information is actually genetic testing. And so the overall diagnosis taking all comers with no exclusionary criteria is about 45%. Wow. And if you add certain filters, so for example, a positive family history of uh, dominant hearing loss, then the the diagnostic rate goes up to about 70%. So it really depends on the filters that you use. But taking only as a filter hearing loss, not otherwise specified, the diagnostic rate's about 40 45%. I'd like to talk a little bit about the kinds of genetic information that you're looking for. So you you just mentioned that there's some family history in some cases with some of your patients. What are the types of genetic information that you're looking for in a genetic test? Are these primarily monogenic diseases? Are these mutations that run in families? Are they more complex than that? So that's a good question. So deafness is classically thought of as a Mendelian disease. So it's classically thought of as a monogenic disease. There are examples of complex hearing loss. So, for example, that would be noise-induced hearing loss or age-related hearing loss, both of which we're studying as complex genetic diseases and both of which we're starting to get a uh, handle on. But by and large, the uh, younger persons, when they're diagnosed, are diagnosed with monogenic types of hearing loss that may represent recessive deafness or dominant hearing loss, or even sporadic cases reflecting de novo mutations. The genes that are involved, do they typically cluster in a particular kind of pathway, or do you find them throughout the genome? They're throughout the genome. So, for example, the testing panel that we use, uh, we refer to it as Otoscope, and we're on version 8, and it has over 150 different genes on it. And so all of those genes are tested at one time. So it's a comprehensive, thorough test. And so that allows the clinician to uh, simply order the test. They don't have to be more detailed and, and request certain genes to be screened. And, and it also actually informs the clinician in subsequent e- examinations of that patient. So, for example, if you order genetic testing, you might suspect that somebody has, for example, Usher syndrome because they have severe to profound hearing loss, and they have delayed motor milestone development. So that's a huge key for Usher syndrome. And then you order the testing, and then your test result confirms Usher syndrome. But it can also identify other genetic causes of hearing loss that are segregating in the same family. So for example, we've had a family who had a child aged about five with profound hearing loss, delayed at sitting, delayed in walking, so Mm. suggesting Usher syndrome. That was confirmed on genetic testing. But the family was also segregating an X-linked auditory neuropathy. So as a result of that, we were able to provide to that family more informed genetic counseling. So not only 
do they have a recurrence chance for having additional children with Usher syndrome, but should they have male children, there's a 50% chance that those kids could also have X-linked auditory neuropathy. Wow. And that's something that you wouldn't know in the absence of genetic testing, and certainly that that's profoundly important to that family. So that brings me to my next question. I heard in your discussion there the word comprehensive being used a bunch of times, and I in doing the research for the podcast, I've read that genetic testing has been going on here since 1999. So there's been testing for auditory disorders. Could you talk a little bit about the kinds of development, the evolution, the evolution of yeah, the technology yeah. from 99 to now? So this is the, to my knowledge, this is the oldest lab in the world that's been clinically certified to provide genetic testing for patient care. And we started in 1999 at a time when the gene that everybody focused on was GJB2. And at that time, the technology involved Sanger sequencing. So the exons of all the genes that you wanted to target were sequenced or were amplified and then Sanger sequenced. And as the number of genes progressively increased, the challenge of providing genetic testing became huge. It became too expensive, too labor-intensive, took too long. It really wasn't a very good test, and we actually tried to develop strategies to circumvent the problems in terms of the number of genes to choose mm -hmm. and the work involved. And so we developed a computer-based machine learning algorithm that we still use today called AudioGene. And with AudioGene, you could input a person's audiogram, and the idea was to be able to use the audiogram to predict the possible genetic cause of hearing loss so that we could focus. You could narrow down. Yeah, so we could focus our Sanger sequencing down to two or three genes. And it turns out that, that if you take expert clinicians and ask them to look at an audiogram and predict a genetic cause, they do very poorly. And if you use <laughs> machine learning, they get it, they get it right in the top three about 60% of the time, 60 to 70% of the time. Wow. And so, and so we actually still use that today to look for genetic modifiers and things like that. So I assume at some point you switch from Sanger to more high-throughput sequencing approaches. Yeah, yeah. So, so the human genome was sequenced in 2003, in April. And that led to the foundation for targeted genomic enrichment and massively parallel sequencing of lots of genes simultaneously. And we started to develop this in about 2008. We actually worked with Agilent as a kind of a partnership. And to my knowledge, it was the first disease for which targeted genomic enrichment was applied with a view to bringing it to the clinic as a clinical test. Wow, and that's interesting. We rolled it out in 2010, and then we rolled out the first clinical version, V1, in 2012, and now we're on V8. And so that means that as new genetic causes of hearing loss are identified, we add them to otoscope. As new exons in known genes are identified through studies at the single cell level of, of, for example, hair cells, we add those to otoscopes. So otoscopes constantly being updated to provide a better and more comprehensive test. That's actually very interesting and very promising. It's, to... it's totally cool. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's so neat because we, we can really, really help patients. So if I, can, if I see a patient and can diagnose the genetic cause of hearing loss, the things that parents always want to know is they want to know, is the hearing loss going to progress? 
Is there anything else going on? What can I do for my child? Right. And if we can categorize it as a certain genetic cause, we can answer all those questions. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk a bit more about the research that you're doing, basic translational research in the lab. And in particular, I was very interested in a paper that I read, a 2016 paper that you published in Human Genetics. You basically did comprehensive genetic testing in in about a thousand patients, I think a little bit more. So why did you do that study? What did you hope to understand and what did you find that's impacted the field? Yeah, so that was a study on just over a thousand persons in whom comprehensive genetic testing had been requested. And now we've tested about 5,000. And the goal was uh, multifaceted. And so we wanted to know, for example, what our diagnostic rate is. And the, the genetic diagnostic rate for all comers is about 45%. But we learned lots of things. So for example, we learned that copy number variance or copy number variation is a huge factor in diagnosing hearing loss. And so if you have a comprehensive genetic testing panel and you don't bioinformatically look for copy number variation, then you're not doing an adequate test on the patient that you're analyzing. Right. So structural variants turn out to be an important driver. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges or obstacles that you run into? This could be in your basic research lab or in your clinical practice. What are the biggest challenges that you run into that really really impede progress in your field? And how do you overcome that? And how do you think that things need to change for, for some of those challenges to be abated? I don't ever look at challenges. I look at opportunities. For example, pushing genetic testing forward is it's an opportunity. It's also a challenge and making it more mainstream. So I mentioned earlier that after an audiogram, the single best test that you can you can get to establish the diagnosis of your hearing loss is getting genetic testing. And so right now, some of the insurance companies pay for it. Some of them don't. And it just reflects an evolution in our understanding of healthcare and our understanding of medicine and what medicine has to offer. So that can be thought of as a a challenge, but it's, it's also an opportunity. And I actually don't worry about that at all. I just kind of push forward with the science and with the translational research that we're doing and the impact that we're making. And the other stuff kind of sorts itself out. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, why do you think there is this disparity in terms of the payers, some covering that genetic testing and some not covering it? To make it value added, the clinicians also have to be educated so that, for example, in the evaluation of hearing loss, it may be that traditionally you were taught to get a CT scan and to get maybe an MR of the temporal bones. Maybe you were also taught to get an ophthalmologic evaluation to check the ears or a renal ultrasound to check the kidneys or an EKG. And so if you list all the things that you could order in trying to diagnose a cause of hearing loss, that bill quickly adds up. Right Now, if you re-educate the clinician and say that after an audiogram, the thing you ought to get is genetic testing and forget all the other tests until you get the results of genetic testing, because that may inform your future health care then all of a sudden, actually, the total cost in the evaluation of somebody with hearing loss is lowered. So you're providing better care, you're providing more personal care, you're providing cheaper care, but you have to not get all these other tests until after you've established whether or not they're in fact needed. Interesting. 
I wanted to ask you this question specifically because my PhD advisor was a physician scientist, so he ran a basic research lab and he also had a clinical practice. One thing I'd like to ask you is, how do you do that? How do you find time to run a basic lab and do the clinical work that you do? And related to that, I know that you've got to be highly motivated to do that. Where do you get your motivation to do that? So I am able to do several different things because I'm surrounded by passionate people who are dedicated and I help facilitate what they want to do and I help encourage their passion and drive and it's a team. It's a team effort and um, I certainly don't do it by myself and it wouldn't work if I wasn't surrounded by passionate and uh, very dedicated people. What motivates you? I mean, it's fun. It's incredibly, incredibly rewarding and incredibly fun. I mean, how many people get to go to work? And, I, and now I'm speaking for myself, but also everybody who works in the MORL and people who work with me clinically. How many people get to go to work every day and know that something that they're doing is making an impact on somebody else's life? And that person, whether they, whether the lab researcher knows it or not, is forever grateful. And we, we actually have some personal connection with people with hearing loss who come through the lab and visit, send us Christmas cards, etc. We have family conferences uh, every year, and we have families that come from Italy, they come, they come from all over Europe, they come from the United States, and they walk through to see the researchers, to thank the researchers, and it's incredibly moving. Wow. It's a gift, I guess, to do this it's, kind of work. It, it is. It is. It's really a gift. You know, there's been a lot of progress from 1999 to now 2018. Maybe we don't have to cover the next 20 years, but over the next five, 10 years, let's say, what are the technological developments that you are looking forward to? What are the things that you think are going to drive this field forward? What really excites you about the future? So there's lots of things that excite me about the future, but one of the most exciting, I think, is the potential for genetic testing in hearing loss to be foundational for novel forms of treatment for hearing loss. So today, if you have hearing loss, you can be fitted with a hearing aid and you may get a cochlear implant. And those technologies are, are incredible. And so they allow you to do very well, but it's important to recognize that they don't restore biological hearing. So they restore your ability to hear and function and communicate, but you still may have difficulty in noise, in restaurants, interacting in social and noisy, complex listening situations. And Mm -hmm. so if you can actually restore biological hearing, that would be great. And so we're spending a lot of effort on different types of gene therapy for hearing loss, focusing on different genetic causes. And so those two will be linked. The therapy might be linked to the cause. And certain causes may be more easily treated than others. And so I'm looking forward to the time when we can offer to somebody hearing aids, a cochlear implant, or some type of gene therapy. I think that will be incredibly exciting. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. And I've learned a lot about this field that I didn't know. And thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks, Paul. It's been my pleasure. Wow, I had no idea that genetic testing for hearing loss began way back in 1999. It's certainly come a long way since then, with Sanger sequencing being replaced by next-generation sequencing, or NGS. 
NGS is enabling the comprehensive and simultaneous testing of over 150 genes linked to hereditary deafness. In conjunction with more traditional testing, NGS-based genetic testing has the potential to make a really positive impact in the diagnosis and prognosis of hearing loss disorders. If you're interested in learning more about otoscope or hearing loss research, visit morl.lab.uiowa.edu. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Alexei Zimin, Associate Research Scientist at Johns Hopkins University. We'll be discussing bioinformatics and the assembly of large genomes here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Music